0: Hey everyone, we continue our read-through of the New Testament, and today we bring John's first epistle to a close, looking at 1 John 5. Let's go ahead and look at the opening five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. What John is saying here in this kind of closing exhortation, bringing the letter to an an end now, is that believing in Jesus as Messiah entails loving of all God's children and loving God himself through faithful obedience. These secessionists that have broken away from the church, they claim to love God, but they do not love all the brothers and sisters in the churches, and that is seen most clearly in their denial of the fullness of Christ, in their lack of love for all of the brothers and sisters in the Lord by seeking to lead them away, and ultimately through both of those, the fact that they do not love God. Keeping God's command to love the brothers and sisters is not onerous, right? But it is an obstacle for those who seek to be schismatic and divisive, proving once more that they do not truly know God. And John further claims that everyone born of God triumphs over the world. The victory that comes from their confession of faith and the victory that is found in the fullness of their understanding and their full knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice, loving God is not just keeping His commandments, though. It's having a kind of heart for God that means that His commandments are not burdensome. And that's what John says. But then he puts that truth in terms of new birth and faith. Rather than love, he says without break, for... That is here what's going on for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And so it is this being born again that creates the reality that the commands of God that we are to live in are no longer burdensome. In other words, the miracle of the new birth is what creates an empowerment and enablement to do the commandments without it being laborious and burdensome. It flows out of a heart of delight, a transformed heart, and an empowered heart. The 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards really wrestled with this text. And he says that saving faith implies love. Our love to God enables us to overcome the difficulties that attend keeping God's command, which shows that love is the main thing in saving faith. The life and power of it By which it produces great effects. I think Edwards was right in that numerous texts in the Bible can support what he says there, right? And another way to say it is that faith in Christ is not just assenting to what God is for us, but embracing all that He is for us in Christ. True faith embraces Christ in whatever ways the Scripture holds Him out to us. This embracing is one kind of love to Christ the kind that treasures him above all things. And therefore, there's no contradiction between 1 John 5, 3, which says that our love for God enables us to keep the commandments, and verse 4, which says that it is our faith that overcomes the obstacles of the world and keeps us from uh, denying or disobeying God. Love for God and Christ are both implicit in saving faith. John then defines the faith that obeys, right? This is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This faith embraces the present Christ as the glorious divine person that he is, the Son of God, fully man, fully God in his incarnation. It's not simply assenting to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Even the demons do that, right? It's believing that Jesus is the Son of God through embracing the significance of the truth, the value of the reality, being satisfied with Christ as the Son of God and all that God is for us in Him. Jesus is the greatest person in the universe alongside His Father. And therefore, all He taught is true, all He promised will stand firm, and all His soul-satisfying greatness will never change. Believing that He is the Son of God... Therefore, includes banking on all of this, being satisfied with it, and not seeking to undermine that which God has revealed in Christ. And that becomes very clear in this next portion, verses 6-12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God, that he has been born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. All right, so here John says something interesting, right? This is he. Here he is laying out the full testimony of Christ. This is he who came by water and blood and he talks about how there are three things which testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, right? Now, some suggest that the water refers to ba- the baptism of Jesus and the blood of the crucifixion. That's possible, right? Because of the fact that you have some of these secessionists that believe that uh, there's perhaps an adoptionistic view, right? Where, where you know, whether Christ was uh, made the divine nature uh, at the moment of his baptism, others have rejected his flesh are all right. So you have a, a multitude of different beliefs here regarding him. So so it is possible that he's talking about that. But, but nevertheless, it seems unlikely since John has really never directly recounted the baptism of Jesus. Um, there are others who suggest that water and blood refer to the two sacraments, baptism and Lord's Su- Supper. This also seems very unlikely to me since John neither recounts any institution of the sacraments. Uh, this difficult saying probably reflects um, John nineteen thirty four, where in John's gospel the testimony God bears to Jesus, His Son, is a key theme. The blood and water that flowed from Jesus after His death, with the with the spear pierced into His eye, His side, water and blood flowing out of there, it attested to the reality of His death. The wound in Jesus' side later confirmed the reality of his bodily resurrection, right? And so both the death and the resurrection were denied by these docetists who denied the humanity of Christ. The primary issue that John is writing against in this epistle are those who deny the humanity, the true bodily physical reality that Christ was indeed human as well as God. But their issue is his humanity and the blood and the water which spilled from his side when he was pierced in the flesh was a clear marker that he indeed was fully human. And the spirit who has revealed this truth, not only in his his work in the incarnation, right? he is the one who brings about the miraculous conception of, of Christ, but also through His testimony. The Spirit has testified through the teaching of the apostles, through the Word of God, through the prophets beforehand, of the nature of who this Son would be, in order for Him to be fully God and fully man, right? And so anyone who refuses to believe in the divine and human nature of Christ, makes God out to be a liar and shows that they themselves do not fully understand the person of Christ nor do they understand the necessity of His humanity for ultimately bringing about eternal life for their sake. John writes, verse 13 through the end of the chapter, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and this is the confidence that we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Okay, so in drawing to a close, John restates his purpose in writing. I'm writing these things to you so that you may may know that you who believe in the name of the Son of God do indeed have the life of the age to come or eternal life, right? John has written to move the readers to faith in Christ that they might receive eternal life in him. This letter was written to assure those who have believed that they actually do possess the priceless gift of eternal life. The language and intent reminds us of John chapter 20, verse 31, where the Son of God came to the world to impart this new life, and John wants his readers to know that they really do possess it. The recent schism and departure of the secessionists has created division and confusion. John is writing to bring unity into the network, to the network of these churches to bring clarity to the believers' confession and confidence in their position before God. And such is their confidence that as children of God, they can be assured that God always hears their requests and petitions. Because you are a child of God, you can know that your father always hears you. John then returns to the topic of sin. In verses sixteen through eighteen, and this might seem odd, but, but it has further implications of the schism. He counsels that those who mentor other believers to pray for those who sin or waver in their faith, but not to pray for those whose sin is a type that leads to death. that presumably refers to those who, by leaving the community, have separated themselves irreversibly from the life that is found alone in the Son of God Jesus Christ. The born of God are kept safe by God, so that they will not abide in sin, nor be harmed by the evil one, right? This is the unforgivable sin. The sin that leads to death here is referring to these secessionists who've denied Christ. And in denying Christ, they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They have made God to be a liar in God's revelation of His own Son. And their rejection of Christ is the sin the ultimate sin, which leads to death, right? All sin, the wages of sin is death, but the nature of that sin, right, that sin, the rejection of Christ, is the unpardonable one, right? There is no forgiveness for those who will not receive Christ as revealed by the Lord. The secessionists, however, have tragically returned to the world of sin, right? the abode of the evil one. Yet the author and his audience know who they are. They are children of God. They know who Jesus is, the Son of God, and what He has given for them, the knowledge of the truth and eternal life. And because of this unique relation between the Father and the Son, to abide in the Father is also to abide in the Son. To be in the true God is to truly have already the life. Of the age to come, and the letter ends on a note that though it may be unexpected to modern readers, it makes a lot of sense to the first hearers. Children, guard yourselves, keep yourselves from idols. An idol is anything that, not itself divine, invites worship and service, as it were. And the whole letter is about wrong views of Jesus, which are ultimately wrong views of God. And about the behavior which as always follows from worshiping that which is not true God. Right? And this is the great thing that these secessionists have done. By creating a false Christ, they have created an idol. And what the first epistle of John really is all about is this primary thing. If you get Jesus wrong, nothing else matters. If you get Jesus wrong... Your whole life will be altered. How you live, how you love, how you walk, how you act, how you think, everything is now off trajectory if you do not have a proper knowledge of Christ. But if you have a proper knowledge of Christ, everything else is put back in place. A proper knowledge, a proper embracing, a proper faith in the fullness of the person and work of Jesus Christ, then that is revealed through a transformed life that is driven towards love and walking in light, the light of God. But this is the great call. Do you know Christ? Do you fully know Him, really know Him? Not just know about Him, not just theologically define Him. Do you know Him? Because if you know Him, your life will clearly bear markers that you have had an interaction with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? If you get Christ wrong, nothing else matters and everything else will fall by the wayside eventually. But if you know Him, then everything else will be put in its proper place. Do you know Christ? That is the most important question in human history. Do you know Him? God bless.